refer to them as the liminal people, the people that neither belong in one place or another. I'm one of them, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I am Irish, but I am also American. I'm a Dubliner, but I'm also a New Yorker. Welcome to Centerpiece NY, the stories of people of all ages and backgrounds who have put down some serious roots in the Irish community in New York. I'm Paul Finnegan, the producer and the presenter of this podcast, and the creator too. Our centerpiece for this episode, our sixth of season two, is a man by the name of Martin Nutty, who arrived in New York in 1983 on an athletic scholarship from his native Dublin. Yeah, I describe myself as a proud dub. Martin Nutty has a broad and deep portfolio of life experiences and endeavours, many of which we'll get to. Athletics, computer software, blogging, to name just some. But, as with all of us, most of the action happens in his mind. It's the reason I'm inclined to call him an intellectual explorer, a description which also complements his real immigrant experience. He's a migrant, literally and figuratively, in the real world, and while sailing on the seven seas of his intellect. I would say Martin's thought-wanderings feed his soul, but as we'll hear, Martin has long since mined that corner of human belief systems for some truths, and let's just say he's not that big on non-scientific thinking. But all this pondering is not locked inside him. If you know Martin, you'll know he publishes at a prodigious pace, through various channels, including social media, with an eloquence of diction befitting the volume of his output on the internet. Perhaps you should have a dictionary handy, or even a thesaurus, as you listen. I'll add this. Martin has developed a gift that often escapes us, a heightened self-awareness, and no doubt this didn't happen overnight. Self-awareness, that cornerstone of creativity, is also a root cause of Martin's cerebral wanderlust. It's what has inspired him to put his musings out into the public domain. Oh, and he's a fellow podcaster. Some might even say we're bitter crosstown rivals. And he has a voice that, well, let's just say is very, very fit for purpose. And so, to begin with, we first fetch up in Dublin a few decades prior to the world we know today. I was born in North County, Dublin, back in the uh, early 1960s. And I grew up in essentially a small rural community that is only eight miles from the center of Dublin called Concealy. Most people might be familiar with the town that is next to Concealy. It's called Malahide in North County, Dublin. I come from a modest family background. There are no aristocrats. There are no famous politicians, etc. in my family background. I like to say that I come from a long line of mailmen grandfather was a, a postal worker. His father was a postal worker. His father was a postal worker. So very modestly circumstanced Dublin family. 
My dad passed away 10 years ago, but my mom is still with us. My mom is actually English, but moved to Ireland in 1936 at the age of seven, and she's 92 years old now. So I get to visit Ireland regularly, spend some time with her and hear her stories. As you get older, I think uh, we tend to value those moments with each passing year. Let's have the family roll call now. I'm one of four. I'm number three. I have an older brother, Stephen or Stefan. He's actually a Gwailgar. Depending on his context, he will shift between those two names. I have an older sister, Anne, who is actually a sister sister, meaning that she is a nun in an enclosed order down near the town of Lismore in Waterford. And she goes by the name Sister Fiacra. And if you know anything about your saints in Ireland, you know that Fiacra is the patron saint of gardening and also quite interestingly of taxis. Apparently in France, a name for a taxi is a fiacre as a result of that. And I have a younger brother, Ben, uh, who also lives in Waterford. Ben is a uh, primary school teacher. Between my older brother and younger brother, I have six Irish nieces, uh, no nephews. So uh, the next generation that has followed on for me is an estrogen bomb. I myself am married to my lovely wife, Lamore, who was actually born in Israel, but grew up in Long Island here. The two of us don't actually have children, and that's by choice, a decision that we actually made. But we're delighted to spend our time with our Irish nieces, and Lamore has uh, three American nieces. Between the two of us, we have nine collectively, which probably makes us, certainly in my case, makes me a lot more attuned to the challenges that women face in the course of their life, be it concerns over equity in the workplace, be it concerns over personal safety, as sadly we have seen play out in Ireland in recent weeks. So I'd like to think that I'm one of the better guys when it comes to uh, issues of women's rights. I would, if at all possible, describe myself as a feminist. I'm sure there's women in my family that might disagree with me and call me a dinosaur, but um, I'm all for smoothing the way. And I continue to be impressed by incredible Irish women who seem to, you know, achieve great things in the world. Now the doors have been thrown open to them. And there's man's best friend, two of them actually. You have a couple of dogs in the house, do you? I do indeed. They are our fur babies. And they're both, interestingly, from Puerto Rico. They're both rescues. They put smiles on their faces, especially during the time of COVID. The older of the two, who just celebrated his birthday uh, recently, and we indulged him and, and gave him a cheeseburger, so he's very happy last night. He's called Monty. The smaller of the two is Jojo, and Jojo's probably about 11 pounds. They keep us amused and put a smile on our faces because, you know, a lot of people are isolated right now, so we don't have any children, but... To some degree, they act as a, a bit of a proxy in that respect. So how long have you been married, Martin? I got married in 1994, so uh, I have to do the calculation now. Uh, 28 years uh, come this March. We both went to the same school, but 
different business areas. In school, I mean by college, we both attended St. John's University in Queens. Lamore went to the law school. I went there undergrad, and then I went to business school for an MBA there. During that time, we would have been there, but we didn't actually know each other. We met each other through mutual friends after both of us had graduated. I was living actually in Baltimore at the time, and Lamore was working up in New York. And out of all my years in the United States since 1983, there is only one year that I did not live in New York. And that was that one year down in Baltimore when I met my wife. Atheism, or at least open acknowledgement of same, is, for the most part, a rarity among Irish people, given the strong historic connection between the different flavours of Christianity and their identity. Nowadays, at this stage of their journey as a nation, with religious practice dropping off considerably, it is more likely most Irish haven't thought their faith through, and adopt a default position in their beliefs, commensurate with the times. If asked, most will say they believe in a God. But of course, Martin has thought it through. describe herself as being secular, as I would also describe myself. The interesting thing, I suppose, about Judaism is it has obviously a very strong religious component, but many Jews choose to engage with their religion in different ways. Sometimes it's simply to celebrate the major holidays such as Passover, Yom Kippur, although that's not a day you really celebrate, that's the Day of Atonement, that's when you're meant to be uh, apologizing for all the bad things you've done in the world. And Rosh Hashanah, which is more a day for celebration, specifically the Jewish New Year. I would say Lamor engages in that tradition, more around uh, the tradition of holiday celebration. Like me, she is not a, you know, temple goer or church goer. I think we share the same views in that respect. Now, you mentioned your sister was a nun mm -hmm. back in Ireland. Yep. and. She's in a, uh, an enclosed order, I think is what you said. Yeah, my sister, originally Anne, now Fiacra, is a member of the Glencairn community, which is a monastery just outside of Lismore. They're Cistercian nuns. They would describe themselves as being contemplative. So there are nuns, for example, that go out and work in the community, and then the contemplative nuns are those nuns that generally retreat from public life to focus on a life of prayer and devotion. In truth, within my family, Anne or Fiacra would represent one end of a spectrum of belief. I, on the other hand, would happily answer to the term atheist. I am an absolute non-believer. That said, we are very close and enjoy each other's company. And there's many things that we agree on. It's just, uh, let's say, I have, a, I have a belief that God does not exist, and Fiacra would be the actual opposite. She does manage an interesting operation, however, where she is. Is that right? Can you tell me a bit about that? In terms of what she does in the Glencairn Monastery, she's been there for about 10 years, so she came to her vocation late in life. And originally, she was involved in one of the two major businesses that the monastery has to sustain itself. Well, actually, it's probably got three businesses. 
They have a Eucharistic bread manufacturing facility. They have a farm where they run cattle, but that's more of a leasing operation as I understand it. And then they have a religious card operation. So originally when Fiacra joined the order, she was involved in Eucharistic bread production. And apparently they specialize in a whole wheat Eucharistic host is one of the things they are known for. In recent months, she has now switched over to the religious card operation. It's a fabulous place to visit, and the Cistercians themselves are very welcoming. It's in a beautiful location that lies, it's probably about 100 acres, that lies just above the Blackwater River with fabulous views of the Knockmeal Down Mountains. Uh, For anybody that, you know, has religious views and are interested maybe in a retreat-type experience, they've just recently constructed a beautiful visitor center that actually includes rooms where actually people stay to go on retreat. They conduct their services in a pretty church, beautiful stained glass. They pray seven times a day, uh, starting, I believe, at four o'clock in the morning. So it is a very different life than the one that I live, uh, living in Manhattan in New York. I bet by now, as you're getting to know Martin, you've become less and less curious about his unique surname and more and more interested in the man himself. But for the sake of completeness, let's hold the family name up to the light. So the name Nutty, you know, and you wear it well, I'll tell you that much, Martin, (laughs) and proudly, I think. When people hear my last name, uh, Nutty, spelt N-U-T-T-Y, in case your listeners thought they misheard, I have to remind them in general that it is actually my name and not necessarily an indication of my psychological profile, although people actually might differ on that. The name itself doesn't sound particularly Irish. As a matter of fact, I don't think it is an Irish name. But I do know that I've been able to trace my family roots back into Dublin into the late 1700s. And indeed, I've found evidence of Nutty's existing in Ireland in the 1600s, so maybe they showed up in Cromwellian era, or maybe it is an Irish name that, you know, has been anglicized in some way, manner, or form. Uh, what I do know is that my great-grandfather was baptized both a Catholic and a Protestant because his father, my great-great-grandfather, a John Nutty, was a Protestant, and my great-great-grandmother, Hannah Nutty, was a Catholic. So they're a product of a mixed marriage, which also kind of makes me think that the family, because of that religion, it may indicate that they are of English origin. But I'd also add simply that Dublin at that time in the 1700s was predominantly a Protestant city, which a lot of people probably don't know. I spent a chunk of time 
you know, doing family research and that in turn kind of spun off a podcast that I called the Nutty Chronicles, which I know you've come across. Obviously, you have some siblings, but do you have an extended family carrying that name in Dublin? I do. My father had a, a brother and a sister. So my first cousins on that side, there were actually seven of them. Uh, fortunately, some of them are no longer with us. But pretty much anybody that I know in Ireland with my last name are all descended from that John and Hannah Nutty that I've mentioned already, both of whom are buried in Glasnevin Cemetery in unmarked graves. And that's a different story. The sun is sinking low in the sky above Ashokan. The pines and the willows know soon we will part. There's a whisper in the Oftentimes, when someone is alive, there are questions about them that can't even be asked, let alone answered. This embargo on our forensics of a person can be even more pronounced in the case of a much-loved parent, and battened down more by the distance of emigration. But in death, as even the traveller comes to know, all bets are off. My father, by training, was a horticulturist. As a child, I went to primary school or elementary school, I guess as you'd say in the United States. I went to Concealee National School, which interestingly was right beside what was then called on Forest Luntus, which was the Concealee Agricultural Research Center. It subsequently got renamed to Tiagask for listeners of more recent vintage. That's where my father worked. My father was involved in horticultural research. He's a guy I talk a lot about on the Nutty Chronicles. One of the reasons behind making that podcast was to some degree to explore my family history, but probably even more pertinently to try and understand my father a little bit better. He's a very unusual man. He's a guy that was a square peg that wouldn't fit in any of the round holes that were presented to him in the course of his life. He was a guy that was totally devoted to learning in an almost monastic way but couldn't fit into an academic environment because if he was presented with a subject that wasn't of interest he just wouldn't study it and consequently flunked out of both UCD and then I believe he went to the Royal Albert College for a while I'm not sure exactly what happened there and his failure to actually get a degree haunted him for his whole life. And so here you've got an example of a man that is brilliant, but unconventional. Growing up in an Ireland of the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, that's a very conventional place. And his lack of credential essentially meant when he worked for what became Chagask, he was ceilinged out in terms of promotion in terms of income and there's good reason to believe that a lot of research that was produced by Tiagas was actually his original work but was actually published under other people's names that particular experience left him somewhat embittered and it was a backdrop of my childhood in Ireland 
call it a low-grade anger being expressed quite frequently that at times I think was a bit toxic, but totally understandable under the circumstances. Nobody likes their work to be plagiarized and everybody likes recognition. And so maybe the lack of recognition for like some pretty ingenious and original work and simply a sense of, you know, having one's work stolen from one can make people very embittered. The other side of that coin was my family acquired a property in Concealy around 1967 or 1968, the actual year escapes me. My parents built a house on this property. It was about a four and a half acre plot of land. And that, in addition to providing a family home, also became part of a family business that my father and mother established. It came to be known as Malahide Nurseries. It now exists, uh, the name escapes me, but has continued to trade 50 years later as an ongoing business and, and local employer. Ireland of 30s and 40s, this is not a country that had a lot in the way of counseling and psychological services, etc. This is not a country where people were getting diagnosed for a lot of these, you know, uh, conditions that are a matter of fact now. And so if you did not fit into that round hole because you were a square peg, you could essentially be tossed on the side. Now, my father found a way, but it wasn't always yes. happy and sunshine. Interestingly, Martin's journey to America began long before he headed to Dublin Airport in 1983. After I finished Concealy National School, I went to Franciscan College, Gormanston, and that was a boarding school run by uh, the Franciscans. Just to be clear, it's called a college, but it's actually a second-level school or what people would call high school in America or secondary school in Ireland. And so that's where I did my uh, leaving cert back in 1981. But probably most importantly from my experience there was not necessarily academic. I got a reasonable education there, some very good, some not so good. But more importantly, when I went to Gormanston, I became involved in athletics, as they say in Ireland. Uh, here it's called track and field. And I became what's called a weight thrower, meaning I threw the hammer, the shot, the discus, and did so, you know, fairly competently enough to get a scholarship to America. I like to say I threw three events all at a mediocre level, but good enough to get a free American education. You're tall. Was that an advantage to you? Absolutely. And I would say, well, long levers are always useful uh, when throwing weights. I think Archimedes could probably uh, tell you a bit about that. Give me a lever long enough and I can lift the world, or I can't remember what the exact quote is. And this indeed also applies to weight throwing. Yeah, I'm tall. I'm six foot four and a quarter. Uh, I go by six four. I don't need to be inflating myself any more than necessary. I actually have short legs and long arms. I've got the body probably of somebody that's six foot ten above the waist and the body of somebody that's five foot seven below the waist, keeping my rear end close to the ground, which is actually in many respects ideal for weight throwing. So somewhere along the line in Gormanstown, they tapped you on the shoulder maybe in your first year there and says, no, uh, Martin, why don't you get out on the field there and let's see what you can do? And the next thing is, 
you felt most comfortable weight throwing or they gave you something to throw and they tested you out? How, how did it all transpire that you fell into weight throwing? The origins of my participation in weight throwing are maybe not quite as obvious. First of all, my mother watched a movie. It came out in 1956 on the lead-in to the 1956 Olympic Games in Melbourne. It was called Geordie. It was about a Scottish guy throwing a hammer, and he throws a hammer in a kilt, and he wins the gold medal, quite unsurprisingly. It was quite popular at its time. That's the same era, of course, as A Quiet Man. Whatever reason had an impact on my mother. But additionally, my mother had an aunt, Louise Casey, but went by Louise O'Brien, and she married an attorney, a lawyer, I should say, in Clonmel called Tom O'Brien. And Tom O'Brien's job, he was a local solicitor, but found himself defending a guy by the name of Pat O'Callaghan. Now, if you know anything about Irish sporting history, uh, Pat O'Callaghan won the 1928 and the 1932 Olympic Games in the hammer throw. And uh, so my uncle, apparently, uh, Pat O'Callaghan was known to, let's say, disregard poaching laws. And periodically, my uncle would have his services called upon to help extract the doctor, Dr. Pat, from whatever sticky corner that he got in there. And so that familiarity between the movie and Dr. Pat, my mother looking at my overgrown body kind of suggested that maybe this was something that I ought to pursue. And so when I went to Gormanston, we would have fairly regular athletics meetings or track meetings, which would include things like the shot put and the hammer and the discus. And that's how I got started. Not at the behest of any members of the school, simply I found my way and gravitated towards that because I thought I might enjoy it. And indeed I did. I would practice with other members of the school there. And bit by bit, I got a little bit better. And as you manage to improve, you get drawn into more of the national circle. And I was very fortunate that probably one of the most important men in my life, a gentleman by the name of Philip Conway, who was a phys ed teacher in Belvedere College in Dublin. I got in touch with him at the age of 13, and he was kind enough to take me on and fill in a lot of gaps in my knowledge and coach me. And so for those years between the ages of 13 and the age of 19, when I went to the United States, a lot of my time was spent in the company of Philip Conway and a band of throwers that were based in Dublin, many of whom continue to be my friends to this day. You were feeding into something called the Irish Pipeline. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the Irish Pipeline is an interesting term, probably not that well understood. After the 1948 Olympic Games, or during the 1948 Olympic Games in London, uh, the American team and the Irish team encountered each other. Some of the members of the American team went to Villanova University, which is down in Pennsylvania. And as they chatted the Irish guys, they basically said, you know, you guys should consider, you know, coming over to college in Villanova. We could use somebody like you. And so I think in 1948, maybe in 1949, the first Irishman to be awarded an athletic scholarship arrived in Villanova University. And that pattern persisted over a number of years and included the uh, great Ronnie Delaney, who is to this day the only Irishman to achieve a gold medal in the Olympic Games 
Of course, he did that in 1956. He attended Villanova University. And so this flow of young Irish men, and it was just men at that point in time, was referred to, I believe, in Villanova as the Irish Pipeline. But as the years passed, Villanova was not the only venue that Irish athletes would go to. And you can find a number of different universities. Uh, Providence, for example, is one that jumps to mind where there's been a long-term flow, Providence specifically because another famous Irish medalist, John Tracy, who also won the World Cross Country Championship, went there twice. And his brother, Ray Tracy, actually coaches in Providence College. So the Irish pipeline became to mean more than Villanova. It came to mean any Irish folks or any Irish men and now women that went to scholarship in the United States on an athletic scholarship, that became the Irish pipeline. And I believe there is somewhere in the range of 700 people since the late 1940s that have fetched up in America on athletic scholarship and competed there and probably got opportunities that would not have been available to them at home. And I'm not just talking about athletic opportunities. Indeed, that was important, but more importantly, academic opportunities because maybe they wouldn't have been able to attend university in Ireland. So it is a proud fraternity and sorority of people that I'm happy to be a member of. Education in the United States can be quite expensive. I was fortunate enough to be able to travel to New York and attend St. John's University on scholarship, had a free education, went there undergrad, and then leveraged that into pursuing an MBA, also provided by the university, not for athletics, but more for academic ability. So I walked out of uh, St. John's after seven years with an undergraduate degree and an MBA and not a dollar in debt. It's not something that young people now are frequently lucky enough to have. I am not a big exponent of the myth of Irish luck, given how unlucky Ireland has often been down through the ages. But here's one story where the luck of the Irish fits perfectly. How would you describe your career in weight throwing while you were with St. John's? I had, you know, some success. I was a Big East champion in 1984. That's my one claim to fame. I only ever won one meet. And to some degree, I won that meet because I was Irish. And I'll explain. That was my freshman year in college. We were down competing in Villanova. There's nine other schools there. I was throwing the hammer. There was some other young men that were, uh, let's say, expected to win that event, at least one of them, young guy from Connecticut. Usually you take a couple of preparatory throws before uh, the competition starts proper. Uh, as we were warming up, I was throwing quite well and feeling pretty good about myself. But in the distance, I saw a very dark and black cloud. And I turned to my coach, a beautiful man, and I, and I talk about people that have an, an enormous influence on my life. This gentleman is a, a man uh, called Kenny Bantam, who was fought in the Olympic Games in 1956, those same games as Ronnie Delaney. Uh, he's a shot putter, a big, tall, African-American man, six foot seven tall. He's just a magnificent person. So I turned to Kenny and I said, Kenny, see those clouds out there? 
pray that they come in faster because that's going to suit me. It's not going to suit these other guys. And sure as hell, within five minutes, that cloud came in and started raining. And it was the one thing that I was used to was throwing in the rain. But let's say my American competitors struggled a great deal. So guys that were expected to win or, or be at the top of the podium struggled and slipped and slid, uh, whereas I threw fairly close to my best at that time, and I walked away with a title, which I'm still proud to kind of talk about, although it's quite a mediocre performance when you look at it on the books. But in terms of other success beyond that, uh, while I was at St. John's, I did actually make it onto the uh, Irish track and field team. So I am also the proud holder of one Big East title and one Irish national team cap in 1985. Ironically, I did get selected for a second team that year, and I turned it down. I'd returned to Ireland during the summer to compete. And I turned down the selection because that meet was going to be held in Norway in September, and I wanted to get back in school in time. And I looked at that and I said, well, I'm going to have plenty more other opportunities. But the truth of it was, by October of that year, I had gotten injured. I had a long history of back problems, and let's say this was an injury too far, and it necessitated back surgery. I was told never to lift more than 20 pounds for the rest of my life. I did come back and continue to compete, but I wasn't quite as good when I did come back. So I finished up competing in college. And I'm proud to say made a significant contribution to my team winning the Big East Championships, the team title on track and field. So uh, that's also a great memory, and which dates back to 1987. Where were you living when you were studying in, in St. John's? At the time, St. John's was a commuter college. There were no dormitories there. That's changed since then. And St. John's, as you probably know, is located in Queens. It's a Catholic university run by the Vincentian Order. And uh, so when I arrived there in 1983, everybody lived off campus. So we would rent places. Uh, my very first year in college, I shared a house with six other track and field athletes. Let's say the hygienic conditions probably weren't up to scratch. Subsequent to that, I had one roommate and rented a smaller place in a basement apartment in Queens. Actually, I had a number of different roommates, one of whom is a guy called Bill Schultz. I'm still in touch to this day, and he is actually the editor of Irish Stew, which is another podcast that I'm involved in, and he has made his career in both radio and in podcasting. So it's a friendship that I value personally, but it has an additional benefit in providing voluntary services, I should add, through Bill's kindness to Irish Stew as we've been standing up that podcast. You left Ireland in the 1980s. What are your thoughts on Ireland then? What was it like there? I left Ireland with the intention of becoming an Olympic athlete. So my departure from Ireland was probably a little bit different than others. I had athletic ambitions. Obviously, I had a, a lurking injury problem that put paid to that. After I finished Gormanston, I actually worked for a couple of years. I probably needed to mature a bit. Let's say I was socially awkward after uh, six years of boarding school in Ireland. I also was athletically marginal from a scholarship point of view, I would say. And so being allowed to mature a couple of years more before I went to college became really important. So I was able to improve athletically in that period. Now, the upside to doing that was I actually ended up working in Dublin 
my job was selling Greek vacations. So at the age of 18, I was in Greece learning uh, all about the Greek islands so I could come back and pitch that to Ireland because at that time in the early 1980s, everybody had decided that they had enough of going to the sun in Spain and decided want to do something more exotic by going to the sun in Greece. This, I think, is also an indication of the beginning of a shift in Ireland, economically, I mean, because people were starting to travel a little bit further afield. But my sense of growing up in Dublin specifically was that opportunities at that time were quite limited. Let me be clear. Ireland was only starting to emerge from what could be better classified at the time as developing nation status. The Dublin that I knew growing up, I might have been growing up, but the city itself felt like it was falling down beside me. If you walked the quays along the River Liffey in Dublin, there were many buildings that were barely propped up. All of that has changed now. But that was the Dublin of 1983 when I grew up. There wasn't an enormous amount of opportunity. Unemployment was in the double digits, probably around 15 or 16 percent thereabouts. Irish people, for the most part, were poor. Dublin City still had its tenement slums into the 1980s. Indeed, I remember driving into the city with my mother and father, and we would see these Irish mammies standing outside their building, you know, with a passel of children streaming out beside them in these beautiful Georgian buildings that were crumbling around them. Just a very different place than the city that exists now. So getting out of Ireland with athletic ambitions and the desire for a bit of an adventure and see some other part of the world just seemed like the smart thing to be doing at that time. And I did so with the encouragement of my coach, Philip Conway, who himself had actually gone on athletic scholarship to uh, Boston University. So he actually encouraged a lot of us to take up athletic scholarships in America because the opportunities were quite limited. And so this would get us, you know, a totally different exposure. Now, quite a number of my peers actually following four years or longer of education in America did actually move back to Ireland. I'm just not one of those. The Celtic Tiger, let's say at that point, was simply a twinkle in the eye. It really wasn't until the 1990s that kind of understood that things were really beginning to change. It was a real shock of dislocation when I arrived in New York in 1983. Newspapers didn't make any sense to me. The stories that were being reported were primarily New York-oriented, something I knew very little about. The sports pages, which I had been an avid reader in Ireland, were talking about things called baseball and American football and hockey, meaning ice hockey, not field hockey. And I was living in a part of Queens that didn't have a very large Irish community. So getting my hands on an Irish paper was not quite that easy. And that was the only time you would really get any meaningful Irish news. 
And of course, in 1983, there wasn't really any internet at all. There was, but I mean, it was purely an academic endeavor. So the notions of, you know, free phone calls, for example, I remember uh, a 10-minute phone call from New York to Ireland cost something like $13, $15 or some crazy number. So communications with family back at home were difficult. So back in the 1980s, you kind of felt a lot more remotely removed. The notion of a Skype phone call, you know, was something that was totally beyond our ken. So it was more of an adventure, more of a remote experience. So that very first year, that transition, that sense of dislocation, that being in a totally different place was really quite pronounced. And it took me a while to kind of put roots down and get oriented. And I, and I think that's part of the immigrant challenge. I'd say, you know, when you hear about immigrant stories, people a lot of times will ask me and say, was that very difficult, you know, leaving your family behind, coming to America? Now, when you talk about the immigrant challenge, you know, the difficulty of it, my experience was 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 very easy. I was going to college. I was on a team. Essentially constructed around me was a network almost immediately with my teammates and with my college. So my entry into America was a hell of a lot easier than many other of the young Irish that came over in the 1980s because I am part of what I consider to be the last great wave of Irish immigration into America in the 1980s. And most of the folks that came over to America at that time came over in an undocumented manner. And I know on Centerpiece New York, you talked about Sean Benson and his efforts to change immigration law so that both me and, and my peers were able to stay in this country and regularize our status. Now, I didn't come into the country in an undocumented status. I came on a student visa. But after I'd finished undergraduate in college, I was only entitled to work for a year in the United States before I would have been expected to return to Ireland or at least found an employer that was willing to sponsor me to stay in the United States. Fortunately, because of people like Sean Benson, the law changed and I was able to participate in what collectively are known as the Donnelly program or the Morrison program, which opened up the doors for one final major wave of Irish immigration in the 1980s. So I have to thank Sean Benson for his work and the other peers that were involved in that work. I am one of the fortunate beneficiaries of that. What kind of work have you been doing since you got your MBA? Um, everything it feels in my life has been maybe in a chain of unexpected evolutions. So I finished St. John's in 1990 with an MBA. Getting a job wasn't easy at that time because of my status. I wasn't a resident, a permanent resident of the United States, nor was I obviously a citizen. And I only was entitled to work for a year. So I took the first job I could get. And I went to work for what's now referred to as a logistics company. Think of it as a shipping company called Expeditors International. And they were based in Jamaica, Queens. Within that first year, I was fortunate enough to regularize my status through the Donnelly visa process. 
And so with that monkey off my back, I was able to focus a bit more on career. Now, I'd gotten an MBA in management, but interestingly, my first job was actually in accounting with this logistics firm. And I took up a lot of different positions within that company over subsequent years and basically worked in every area, import, export, accounting, went and opened up a new office actually down in Baltimore. Did a variety of things, uh, ocean freight, air freight. But one of the emerging things that was happening at that time was when I started working there, this was the era of fax machines. This was the era of computing when one used a terminal. But all of a sudden, PCs were being put on people's desktops and people were using Windows and most people didn't know how to use those. And I looked at that and I was kind of fascinated by computers and what their potential was. I'd taken one course in college in computing and found that I actually had a facility for it. But as a jock, as they say here, I didn't like the image of being a, uh, you know, computer nerd, even though I actually had a facility with it. And so when the opportunity represented itself as I began to work, I kind of gravitated towards that because I had a, you know, facility on that front. And the best advice that I've ever received in terms of crafting a career is to find something in the job that you're involved in that interests you. And so computers became a gateway into the career, which has been a career in technology. And I occupy a very narrow space in technology. Now I work in the financial sector in New York. Specifically, I'm what's called an Excel Visual Basic Applications Programmer, VBA. And when I explain that to people, I say, well, if you ever use an Excel, the spreadsheet program, and you say, I wish it could do that, I'm the guy that can make it do that. And so I've made my career in that space in the last 20-odd years as a programmer. In the course of my professional career, let's say I've had some difficulties professionally, as many people do, and my difficulties actually did revolve around a number of interesting factors. I would say I found it very difficult to ask people for help. It's a product of my childhood. My father was a guy that basically his old line was, if you want to do anything, you got to do it yourself. And in some way, manner or form, it was communicated to me that I should be able to figure out things by myself because if I'm not able to do that, well then, you know, you're not really very good at what you're doing. It was a toxic message. And I, I don't think that was the intention of my father. My father's experience was a result of some pretty bad things that happened in his life. But it was a message that was transmitted generationally and that caused me some problems. So when you work in a high-powered environment like you know, the financial sector in New York City, you encounter professional challenges that are extraordinarily difficult at times. Chances are some of them are not really solvable. And so I would immerse myself in a particular problem and would struggle with it a great deal to the point of exhaustion and psychological hardship. Call it depression, call it what you want. And if you become all immersed in work, that is not a happy place to be and you get no break from it. About 10 or 15 years ago, that came to a head and I took a year off to take a break and reset and figure out what I wanted to do. 
I had some other health issues also that were impacting that physical health issues as a result of my athletic career. And so during that year, I kind of reset and it's a wonderful thing to be able to afford to take a year off and to be able to look backward and realize where the problems were. And actually in that year, I returned to St. John's as a volunteer track coach. And when I did that, I realized that there was something deeply missing in my life, a sense of balance, that it can't all just be about work. There needs to be other things outside of work. Because when you're faced with extraordinarily difficult problems day to day, you need something else to focus on, especially when times are hard. But the other lesson learned during that year off was that asking for help is not a weakness. In many respects, it is strength. You just have to have enough humility to be able to ask for help. So when I re-entered the workforce back into the financial sector, I was much better prepared, but also part of that re-entry, I communicated to my employers that I had these obligations outside of work and they were important to me. I expected to fit those in and I, you know, would communicate that if that was a problem, that might be a problem for me and maybe I need to go elsewhere. Now, I've been extraordinarily fortunate that my employers have been quite supportive of that. And where does podcasting fit into this paradigm for Martin's life? It's the same thing. It is an avocation that exists outside my day-to-day work challenges. It gives me an alternative perspective. So the podcasting thing came out of a work experience or tangential work experience. Every year in November, there is a, a charity called Movember that raises money for men's health, specifically around things like, you know, cancer and mental health conditions, etc., that, you know, plague men who fail to take care of themselves properly. My father would definitely have fallen into that category. He was a lifelong smoker until he had a major heart attack when he was 70 years old. And then he quit cold turkey to his credit, but there had been damage done to his heart. He did subsequently have bowel cancer, probably linked to his smoking as well. And so when I was at work, we were participating in this Movember thing. And you're encouraged to, you know, touch one's co-workers to contribute to that. And I decided to take a different angle than the rest of my peers. And so what I did was I wrote basically a thousand word piece on the last couple of weeks of my father's life, explaining what had happened to him and how he had come to this place in 2012 of end-stage heart failure. And people were really touched by that professionally. People that I would think of would have just said, you know, I can't believe that this guy is laundering his, you know, family history openly over email. People would actually approach me and say, thank you for writing that. And that got me to thinking about my family and my family's history and their stories. And that bred the Nutty Chronicles. Originally, it started out as a blog. I was interested in podcasting as a medium, an alternative way to tell stories that may not have broad commercial appeal. And the podcasting platform is very powerful. You can kind of, with a decent amount of effort, put out, you know, quite a good finished product at a relatively low cost. And I encountered a well-known podcaster in Ireland, a guy called Finn Dwyer, 
who I brought over to the American Irish Historical Society to speak about podcasting and Irish history. As I got to know Finn, I kind of realized that my family stories actually might make an interesting podcast. And so that birthed the Nutty Chronicles, and it allowed me to kind of learn the, the whole process behind creating a podcast and pushing it out in the public and encouraging people to listen to it, etc. It is a common thread, especially among emigres from Paddy's Green Shamrock Shore, to get drawn back to one's culture of origin, even despite resistance, as happens. Monsignor James Kelly, from a previous episode of this podcast, can attest. What do they say? The savage loves his native shore? (laughs) They also got involved in the American Irish Historical Society, and that was an institution that I lived quite close to, and it afforded me an opportunity to actually engage in the Irish community, which was something that I had never really done in New York, and I'd never made a point of being engaged with the Irish community. If anything, I took a certain degree in pride in the fact that I had left my Irishness behind me, which may have been a product of, let's say, the hard times that I was exposed to in Dublin in the 1970s and 1980s. My attitude had simply been at the time was, if Ireland is so wonderful, and I'd hear people talking about this a lot of times, you know, occasionally when I'd interact with the Irish community and they were like, oh, it's awful over here or it's terrible. I wish I was back at home. I said, why the hell don't you go back home? You know, if Ireland is so wonderful, what are you doing over here? And the truth of the matter was, is, you know, there are aspects about Ireland that are wonderful, are to be missed and are to be valued. So I threw out the baby with the bathwater to some degree. And so it became a growing realization as I started engaging with the American Irish Historic Society that that was something that I should cultivate and re-engage with. I'll come back and I'll wet the wheel I see I left on Paddy's Green Shore Regular listeners to this podcast will recall Sophie Colgan's insider account of the American Irish Historical Society. Here's Martin's commentary in an ongoing saga with more than its fair share of plot twists. Unfortunately, things in the American Irish Historical Society took a turn for the worse, and the things that I was advocating for fell on somewhat deaf ears to the point uh, during the pandemic that essentially that organization, for the most part, has shut down because of financial difficulties, and it's frequently in the news as the organization themselves decided to sell the building, which is across the street from the Metropolitan Museum in New York. It's a beautiful townhouse building. They were going to liquidate that to, you know, at a price of something in the range of $50 million to kind of move the organization forward. Now, Members of the Irish American community, more broadly the Irish community, push back against that, and I'm certainly in that camp. So uh, we're hopeful, uh, you know, that that organization gets restored to an active status and allows Irish people to engage in the kind of things that I'm now doing on the Irish Stew podcast.
met John down in the Irish Consulate in Park Avenue, who kindly host once a month a session called First Fridays. And it's thrown open to anybody that's interested in Ireland. You can go there and get breakfast and eat some very fine sausages and brown bread and tea. And it's a bit of crack. Usually there's a speaker, but you also get to meet people with similar backgrounds, you know, to myself. And I met John Lee there. And John had been more actively involved in the Irish American community. I was casting around looking for somebody that would essentially could be a sidekick in doing the kind of programming that I thought we should be doing in the Irish American Historical Society. And so I'd reached to a couple of people and most people were ambivalent about it. But when I talked to John, he was totally on board with that. And so a podcast began on the eve of the pandemic. The idea behind the podcast is promoting the notion of what we call the global Irish nation, meaning whether you are the Irish of Ireland or the hyphenated Irish, Irish-American, Anglo-Irish, Aussie-Irish, whatever other flavor uh, you are. There are something like 70-odd million people worldwide that claim Irish ancestry. It's important to bring that broader community together to make people aware that that community exists, that it is a vital resource to be tapped into by Irish people in Ireland that maybe is a little underappreciated. Because the truth of the matter is, at least in my experience growing up in Dublin, is there is a certain amount of discomfort, specifically between the Irish of Ireland and Irish Americans. And what I mean by that is, is Irish Americans are, are welcomed to Ireland. But the Irish of Ireland sometimes can be rubbed the wrong way when Americans show up and say, I'm Irish. And Irish people, especially Dublin people, is like, no, you're freaking not. <laughs> you're American, you know. And of course, Irish Americans don't mean that they're actually from Ireland. They mean they're actually Irish American, which is its own cultural identity. So there's a bit of friction there. And so what we want to do is provide a bit of lubricant in that friction and remove it and act as explainers. And we do that by talking to people that we consider to be successful in one way, manner, or form. And of course, Paul, you've been one of our victims. Um, <laughs> but we want to tell those stories, those global stories. So sometimes we talk to people that are based in Ireland. Sometimes we talk to you know, people based in America. Sometimes we talk to people based in England. And we're going to go further afield, you know, over upcoming episodes as we've learned the form and come to understand it. But the idea is in talking to all those people to make the case that the interaction of all these flavors of Irishness, this global Irish nation, is beneficial to all parties involved. Because the great ideas in the world often come from people that live in two different cultures. I refer to them as the liminal people, the people that neither belong in one place or another. I'm one of them, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I am Irish, but I am also American. I'm a Dubliner, but I'm also a New Yorker. And... My perspective as a result is a little bit different from people that just belong to one of those places. And so I'm constantly 
in the compare and contrast mode. Now, except I've been in the United States for 38 going on 39 years right now. I can't say I understand in totality the challenges that people face in Dublin, but I do visit often enough to be able to take the temperature of the place and understand what's going on. And I find myself in the position a lot of times of being the explainer of America, of New York, to Irish people. And I am the explainer to New Yorkers and Americans of Ireland and maybe more broadly Europe. And now a word from our friends at the Celtic Irish American Academy in Galway. My name is Brian Fahey, director of the Celtic Irish American Academy. I would like to invite you to join us on our next program, which takes place in Salt Hill, Galway, from July the 10th to the 23rd, 2022. Our two-week immersive summer program for high school students is now enrolling. Come join us on this wonderful adventure in a classic Irish setting. This is Caitlin from Parkland, Florida. In July 2019, I attended the Celtic Irish American Academy as an emerging Irish-American young leader, fully immersing in the culture and heritage of Galway, Ireland. We stayed with an outstanding host family for two weeks, touring and attending classes on leadership, business, and volunteering. The memories I have and the friendships I made will last a lifetime. For more information, visit our website at CelticIrishAmericanAcademy.com. And now... Back to Centerpiece NY. A lot of people are insular, Americans in particular. A lot of Americans never travel outside the country. And so they don't hear an alternative voice. And to some degree, America and its culture have succeeded economically by constantly refreshing the country with the new blood of immigrants that bring in new ideas and new ways of thinking about things. And that's why immigration is so important in America. And rather than being discouraged, which is a lot of times part of our political conversation in this country, our fraught political conversation, it should be encouraged because its benefits far outweigh its downside. And it's interesting also to see in Ireland now something like 17% of the population in Ireland is now foreign-born. So Ireland itself is struggling with understanding how to integrate people effectively within its own polity. You were advised to have that dictionary to hand. And so they are now facing some of the same challenges that America has been dealing with for decades or centuries. You know, how do you bring people in, fit them into your culture, benefit from their alternative perspectives, but also make sure that they kind of fit neatly in the social framework of the country. And so these are problems that every country is increasingly have to deal with because humanity, if anything, is getting more mobile, not less mobile. And there's reasons to believe that that will only accelerate. And so a mature country with a mature polity, with a mature political leadership, 
understand that that is one of the healthy challenges that they can be faced by uh, with a country. And the job of leadership is to turn away from kind of a narrow knee-jerk reaction that a lot of times is visited upon people that look different, worship a different God, come from circumstances maybe that are quite impoverished, and to tell that extraordinary alternative narrative. It's a narrative that's shared by Irish people that came in droves following the famine. And that narrative is ultimately one of triumph coming from incredibly impoverished circumstances. Many Irish people that came to the United States in the 1840s from the west of Ireland didn't even speak English. So they were not native English speakers. As a matter of fact, if you look at the New York census from the 1850s, you'll see quite a lot of them being listed as Irish speakers. Well, now that we've heard from one of the dynamic duo on the Irish Stew podcast, let's hear what John Lee has to say. Ah, Martin Nutty, hammer thrower, data nerd, history geek, tech-savvy genealogist with a literary bent, and even Liam Neeson is jealous of that voice. And after an episode of Irish Stew with Martin, I'm wearing out my thesaurus trying to keep up with his vocabulary. So I would say working with Martin was a liminal experience, if I knew what liminal meant. Martin's also, as it turns out, he's a natural promoter. He's always coming up with creative ways to help us grow the podcast. You know, for us, it was pretty much collaboration at first sight. We barely knew each other before we decided to start doing what ultimately became Irish Stew. It turns out we were both thinking of doing very similar podcasts, similar but not identical, kind of uh, two parallel lines that never seemed to meet. And I think that sets up some creative tension between us, and I think that's a good thing for the podcast. So Martin brings the authentic Irish street cred to Irish Stew. I supply the Irish American voice. We're both at different phases of the diaspora journey, and I think both of those voices help expand our global Irish conversations. Tis the last rose of summer Left blooming alone All her And so, Martin, your thoughts for the future. In terms of the podcast, one of the reasons I got involved in this is, to some degree, I see it as a long-term project. Whether it ever evolves into anything more than the hobby that it is now, that remains to be seen. I like to think it's a contribution that I'm making towards the country that I came from and to the Irish-American community of which I'm proudly a part of. I would refer to myself at this point as Irish-American. Going forward, 
I expect to continue to do that. And it's going to be an evolution. You know, a lot of times you start off with one of these things and you find people are more interested in a certain aspect of what you're doing. We're still in the early stages. It's something that I expect to do even at this stage in my life. I'm getting to the point where conversations with me and Lamar are beginning to revolve around things like retirement. My hair is gray. It's gotten thinner that is just a reality. I'm a programmer. That's a young man's game. Although I still think of myself as a young man, the story that's told in the mirror every morning is a little bit different. So I recognize that. And so the podcast thing with Irish do represents an alternative thing to do with my life that I can do long term that I get to steer, that I get to define And I'm fortunate enough to be able to afford to do that. I'm not sure where exactly it will take me, but I've been really enjoying the journey so far. My conversation with Martin took place in late January 2022. It is, in fact, the first time I conducted a full remote interview with my centerpiece. Why was that, I hear you cry out? Less than 24 hours before, Mother Nature had dropped a non-negligible amount of the white stuff on New York City in the first and hopefully last major snowstorm of our winter this year. When that happens, a massive metropolis grinds to a halt until the dig-out completes. You can find out more about this podcast and listen to more episodes at centerpieceny.com. That's C-E-N-T-E-R-P-I-E-C-E-N-Y dot com. There, you'll find the show notes for this episode, where you can learn more about Martin's podcasts and about his niece, singer-songwriter Rosa Nutty, and the excellent music she graciously allowed us to use. She's the one in possession of that fantastic female voice singing solo throughout this episode. In closing, please be sure to let us know your thoughts about this episode and this podcast in general by leaving a note on our website, or better yet, writing a review there. And be sure to sign up for our email updates. And who is Seamus Plugwinnies at home, anyway? Will we leave it like that, so... <laughs>